Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. While the Liberal government survived a non-confidence vote on pandemic benefits last night, we're going to find out where they go from here. Cases are climbing across the province in the COVID-19 battle. How's Hamilton doing? Canadian Federation for Independent Business is calling on the federal government to do more for small business because some may not survive if there's no help. And should Ontario move back to phase two with COVID? Are there concerns about overloading the health care system? We're going to talk about both of those things as well. Stick around. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Let's talk about what's going on in Ottawa. What happened last night? Another marathon session. Uh, liberal confidence vote, actually, over the federal government's uh, uh, new legislation to try to deal with people that are coming off the CERB benefit, which, of course, expired. Uh, it was the wee hours of the morning before they finally got it settled. Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief with Global News, joins us to talk about this. Mercedes, thank you for the time on uh, the morning after. I guess the morning of, because it was just a few hours ago they finished this, wasn't it? It was around 3 a.m. that they just wrapped up. Uh, an unexpected confidence vote for the government. The government called that a uh, bit of a dare to the opposition to try to bring them down over COVID-19 benefits. The opposition was not happy about the way the government handled this. That's why the vote was in the middle of the night, because they were using procedural tactics to demonstrate uh, their unhappiness. And that's because this is about $34 billion in new spending, and the government short-circuited debate on it. They shut down debate, uh, which meant that the bill went through very, very quickly, arguing that that was important because people are about to lose their benefits. The opposition pointing out, well, the Liberals were the ones who prorogued Parliament, which is why they weren't able to look at legislation for a month. So at the end of the day, the opposition all voted in favour of this, but they were not happy about the level of scrutiny the bill and the spending in there got. Well, and a little bit of, of theatre here, too, is, you know, as you say, there was a confidence vote. Mr. Rodriguez, of course, the House leader for the Liberals, uh, suggested that was going to be the case, that it was going to be considered as a confidence motion. But he pretty much knew he had the NDP support anyway, didn't he? Yeah, exactly. I mean, they, they knew that the NDP was going to back this because the two biggest things the NDP wanted, which were the increase um, to the EI benefit, which is people transitioning off of CERB onto an EI program that will be more flexible and generous, uh, they increased the funding as per the NDP's request. And it's also the bill that had sick leave. And those were the two conditions for the NDP to support the government in the speech from the throne, which, by the way, there will still be a confidence vote on. Don't look for unanimous support on that. Uh, but they were guaranteed pretty much they would have the NDP support here. So they were quite safe in making this a confidence vote. Busy day today, and uh, we'll be watching for your reporting on this on Global National later on today, Mercedes. Thanks so much for the time. Thanks for having me. Take care. Mercedes Stevenson, Ottawa Bureau Chief with Global News. And, and like I say, some theatrics involved in this, but that's that's politics. That's the way they play the game. But as Mercedes reminded us, there's still another confidence vote coming up, and that'll be on the throne speech, and that may be a little more prickly for the government. Henry Jasek, Professor of Political Science from McMaster University, joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about last night and what's going to happen going forward. Henry, good morning. How are you this morning? Just fine. Good. Uh, fascinating to watch the the dramatics here, as Mercedes Stephen just told us. Uh, we we pretty much knew this was going to carry, uh, but uh, even in a situation like this, especially with a, a minority government, but the opposition just can't resist an opportunity to get their digs into the government, can they? Well, yeah, that's for sure. I mean, they that's something that you a minority government and a minority government leader has to put up with, and it's it's uh, you know probably. For for a prime minister, that's probably the the worst sort of situation for him. Especially, it drags on, and he just can't basically uh, you know tell everybody I'm not going to listen to you because I've got a majority and I'm going to do my own thing. He he just can't do that, and he's got to put up with this endless uh, attacks and suggestions and demands, and you know always living it on a knife's edge. 
Well, and I know that part of the, the concern here, as uh, we've just found, was with procedural issues that they thought there should have been more discussion and debate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and maybe there's maybe there is some legitimacy to that. But I mean, by the same token, uh, there there was a, an urgency to this as well. Now I know, yeah, and, and they're going to come back and say, well, if you didn't prorogue Parliament, you wouldn't have any sense of urgency. Uh, but it is what it is. And at the end of the day, they were pretty much all going to support this anyway. I mean, uh, even if you don't like what the government's doing if you're a conservative or a block member uh, you can't go back to your constituents and say yeah i voted against the benefits that you people really need at this time of day yeah it is difficult and it, and and for the uh, for both the uh, block quebecois and the conservatives they have uh, they will have uh, you know it, they would have difficulty explaining that to their constituents maybe the conservatives given the nature of their constituencies might have a little easier time but uh, the bloc certainly would have trouble uh, doing that. And I think uh, given the strength of the bloc in the polling this year, I think uh, this is something I think the prime minister's hat would be happy to pass and then go back to Quebec and say, you know, boom, we're the ones that are protecting you people, not the bloc. So it gives him, it gives him a good weapon back there. I mean, it got a little silly last night at one point, too. I mean, they even asked for a public apology from a former MP. He's not even there anymore, <laughs> a liberal MP that uh, I guess was less than forthright with some of his financial records, I guess is a good way to put it. Uh, not quite as bad as the guy in the White House, but nonetheless. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're really kind of grasping at straws just to try to, to, to get their digs in. But then they finally got down to voting. i got to ask you about procedure on this, though, Henry. Uh, obviously, there's only a handful of people in the Commons itself. A lot of this is done virtually. Uh, and you, there's a lot less desk thumping and, and hooting and hollering going on. Uh, it's it's the, probably the most civil, I think, that Parliament sounded in the last 15 or 20 years especially. Yeah, it is. It is. When you do reduce the numbers, you do reduce the noise. I think, I think that is pretty clear. Um, so uh, on the other hand, I don't think I would say they should do that all the time. No, after no. the pandemic. But, uh, yeah, there's no doubt in both Ottawa and, and the provincial legislatures that, there is, uh, that this is a decorum in the, uh, in the uh, commons uh, and in the legislatures are, very, are, are a really, you know, big problem. And, and, and I think they have been getting, that has been getting worse, and uh, I, I don't think it reflects well on the political process. What's going to happen going forward? Uh, you know, there was obviously some backroom dealing and a lot of calls and back and forth between, uh, well, specifically the NDP and, and the, the Trudeau government uh, after the speech from the throne, obviously, because they're looking for some support here. Uh, and, and the government did, you know, I guess bend a little bit, and some of the stuff that the NDP wanted are now going to be introduced as policy, uh, EI benefits and a number of other things that are on the table right now, which still need to be voted on. Uh, is this a solid partnership between these two parties, or is this a one-off? Well, I think uh, this is a um, well. We know we do have a history of the NDP uh, going back quite a bit of time of supporting a liberal minority, particularly if it's it's being run by a progressive prime minister. Certainly, Justin's father benefited from uh, David Lewis and the NDP supporting him between '72 and '74, when mm-hmm. when uh, when uh, Pierre had a, had a much weaker minority. Uh, but I think what we're what the NDP is doing now in a very more in a very conscious manner, I think they are pretty much sold on what I would call the latent strategy, and this is a long-term strategy. Layton's view was, whenever when there's a minority government, we will support the minority government, but they have to give us one or two very concrete things that we think is very important, and and so they would negotiate this out, and he his whole idea was that. You know, we over time the NDP would accumulate 
a bunch of policies, things that were done or programs that they could take credit for and say this and tell the Canadian people you ought to finally elect us as government because these are these are the type of good things that we can give you. And I think this I think uh, Jagmeet Singh and the present NDP is doing the same thing. They they're going to try to build up a number of things that they've forced the government to do and they're going to use that as an example as examples of the things they could do if they had a majority government. And the NDP is much more willing to play a, a long-term game compared to maybe the conservatives. You know, the conservatives can be pretty pretty short-sighted in terms of, you know, either giving their leaders one shot at it and oftentimes then getting rid of them. Uh, the NDP is quite willing to have a leader that's who slowly increases their vote, increases their support with the idea at some point they're going to break through into you know, into uh, into the government themselves. So uh, this is this is this is, I think, the thinking behind the NDP. The Liberals, of course, don't want to go. I think generally we're concerned about going into an election because a lot of the polls showed that they were more likely to get another minority than a majority, and that that would really weaken the government further, having to you know do that. So um, so they they were amenable to this strategy. Uh, and I think they can, you know, they think that at some point they're going to be able to get back to a majority, probably hoping that's going to happen uh, next year, but uh, we'll see see what, what goes on. Well, we saw that with the legislation, Bill C-4, that was finally passed last uh, or early this morning, I guess, as it turned mm-hmm. out, uh, because one of the stipulations in the initial bill uh, as a replacement for the SERB benefit was, like, as I say, it's a whole different uh, situation and, and uh, qualification for it, but the top-up is only going to be about 400 bucks a month as opposed to 500 and the mm-hmm. NDP has wanted that amendment. Uh, you, in other words, you can't make less. Yeah. on this program and, and they, that, that was they said okay fine yeah we'll throw that in there yeah, yeah. Uh, so it, it can work and there are partnerships and, and i guess one of the things that makes it easier uh, henry is that there's not a whole lot of philosophical difference between the two parties i mean within the parties themselves i'm sure there are but there seems to be a much more willingness for them to work together in other words a lot of the stuff the ndp would love to see the liberals adopt and introduce as legislation are things they've even talked about but they just figure you know like daycare programs and things of that nature they said we're not sure we can do this but now uh it's amazing the number of things that can actually happen in a minority government if there's some collaboration that goes on that's absolutely true and of course we have a great great historical example uh mike pearson who was the prime minister from 60 63 to 68, uh, he only had a minority government. We can look at all sorts of great things, that, you know, important things that, you know, uh, you know, uh, that we live with right now. Uh, you know, symbolically, we live with it, the flag that he brought in, yep. uh, but uh, we live with Medicare and all sorts of expansion of various welfare welfare programs in that period, and that was with the support of the NDP. And, and in many ways, you know, uh, the NDP would say at that point that they – that the liberals took their ideas, and and that's not the first time Mackenzie King at the end of World War II took the CCF ideas, uh, you know, on various issues, pensions and uh, other things like that, and that they were able to come back for uh, a long majority after that. So there's there's a long history of the uh, of the liberals borrowing ideas uh, that are and programs that are very popular, that they can live with, and that will guarantee them. Uh, or at least in, incline the, the electorate to get, give majorities to the liberals. So this is a fairly long-standing type of pattern, and I see no reason why uh, it wouldn't continue uh, into the future.
Yeah, the Medicare thing is, well, I guess I was going to say they could make a movie out of that. I think they already have some CBC enterprises anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they, they, they tried for years. Tommy Douglas, of course, uh, was, but which was not his idea. I mean, Harry Truman tried to introduce this in 1948 in the States, uh, but he couldn't get support from the Republicans. Right. And I know it had gone on in some Scandinavian countries too, but uh, Douglas wanted to do it. I guess he did it when he was the premier in Saskatchewan. Uh, but mm-hmm. uh, John Diefenbaker was the prime minister initially when he wanted to bring this forward, and he just wasn't going to budge right. on it. And uh, a change of government. I guess they figured, hey, here's an opportunity. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see just how uh, Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh play this out. Yeah, I think, I think they will keep working until the point where Justin thinks, I, I'll call an election because I think I can get a majority. As long as he thinks there's a chance of him not getting that majority, then I don't think he's, uh, you know, uh, he, he will, if, sorry, if he, he doesn't think he has a chance of getting the majority, he'll keep playing along with just, uh, with the just uh, sorry, with Jagmeet Singh. So uh, I think, you know, we'll have to see. Now, apparently, according to some in the most recent polling, people are quite happy with the agreement between the NDP and the, uh, and the liberals. Um, now, it's a little too late to, you know, use that to, for, to call an election because not, not once the Trudeau has agreed to that and everybody could see that the, liberal, the NDP is going to support him, then he doesn't have a justification for calling a minority government. But I think, if, uh, sorry, a new election. So uh, he, but but I think I think he quite realizes that uh, he he's got to find a point at which probably sometime next year where you know it doesn't look like he's being opportunist and the public opinion polls give him a better than even chance of uh, you know getting a majority. Yeah, the last couple of polls have had uh, the Liberals with a slight lead, and we're only talking about uh, two or three percentage points, and that's that's hardly a, a measure of safety to say, yeah, let's that's take a right. run at this. Yes. Mind you, uh, you know, if the vote had gone south on them last night, uh, you know, we'd be into an election already. So, I mean, you know, they are kind of, you know, poking the bear a little bit to see what's going on. But uh, as I say, I think there was probably a lot more theater in that than there was uh, realism because they've got to get this legislation passed, and I think they know that. And uh, I I can't see it changing a whole lot, Henry, until we kind of get over the hump with COVID, and it doesn't look like that's going to happen anytime soon. Yeah, I think this probably surprised the prime minister and maybe some of our political leaders uh, when we, you know, when we were driving the numbers down, I think they thought, oh, by the time we hit August, we're really going to be in a great shape. And they, I think the big probably disappointment was that, you know, although most of the politicians, you know, is this in, the politicians in office probably won't say this, is that while we did drive it down, we didn't, you know, we didn't really crush it. We missed an opportunity, I think, particularly in Ontario and Quebec, which, of course, is run by, the, uh, by provincial governments. Uh, but nonetheless, the, the, we weren't able to really drive the virus really and crush it into the ground in August. And, it, you know, so we got, you know, in Ontario, a li- under 100 ca- new cases a day when we really should have got it down to, to single digits. And, of course, what happened, as soon as we got there and uh, pr- people started relaxing, the provincial governments relaxed, both of them uh, we had prorogement of the federal legislature. It sent a message, I think, to people that we've beaten this thing. And, of course, <laughs> with, with this virus, you know, you, you take your foot off the neck of the virus and up it pops. And now yeah. it looks clearly we're in a second wave. We don't know how bad it's going to be. Um, and we know it's going to be more difficult now for, and it is more difficult now for the premiers of the two provinces to go back and tell people, listen, we've got to, you know, shut down things they're really resistant to that, but you know, and then the, then you know, then people are going to get more and more worried, and uh, 
and this is going to go go on through the winter and we're not really sure how bad this is going to be but you know we've got the example of the of the Spanish influenza 100 years ago yeah. where the second wave was a lot worse than the first and people begin to think well I can live with we can live with this and in fact uh, it just gets worse and worse and worse yeah, I know, and the attitude from so many people I heard, oh, well, you know, we're smarter than that. That's not going to happen. Well, I don't know how much smarter we are because we kind of let our guard down too. Anyway, and it's going to have an impact on politics for, uh, well, for the foreseeable future anyway. Henry, always a, a pleasure to get your perspective on this. Thanks so much for the time today. Okay, have a great day. Take care. Henry right. Jasek, of course, political science professor at McMaster University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Everybody, of course, is talking about COVID-19 and the second wave and the impact it's going to have and the concern that's being expressed. I mean, you know, been there, done that, of course. We saw what the first wave did to us economically and certainly from a health standpoint. And uh, the premier himself in question period yesterday expressed some serious concerns. We've already taken countless steps to reduce uh, the gatherings, restrict gatherings, address hotspots across the province. And, and that's why, as I, I said earlier, we're investing $283.7 million on the backlog of surgeries. We're put $1 billion into testing and tracing. We have the largest flu immunization program ever seen in the entire country. That's 5.1 million flu shots, which I encourage each and every one of us to go out there and uh, get. Uh, and we'll get into that in a little great detail. A couple of days ago, we had uh, London Middlesex uh, Medical Officer felt Dr. Chris Mackey on talking about uh, how they were dealing with the uh, the increased numbers there and uh, the amount of testing that's going on. want to check in with Hamilton's uh, Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, who joins us on the Bill Keller Show to give us that, that perspective. Doctor, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could join us. Good morning, Bill. Numbers are going up considerably. It's, it's not a spike. It's not dramatic like we've seen on a province-wide basis, but there has been a steady incline. How concerned are you, Doctor? Well, yeah, there has been a steady incline, as you say, Bill. That's a good way of putting it, and I am concerned, you know, when we, for a couple of reasons. One is that I'd hoped, you know, at the end of last week, the numbers had come down a little bit, and I thought maybe it's just another one of our waves and we'll be a little different here in Hamilton. But over the course of the weekend and over the last day or two, we've continued, continued to see our number of cases per day go up, and we're at 9.4 cases per day as of yesterday. I'm just waiting for today's numbers. Um, which is, you know, getting well up there at the top of our own peak here in Hamilton during the first wave, we were at 11.6 cases per day. So that shows you just how far we've come um, towards that, uh, those previous numbers. So quite concerned about what we're seeing. The other thing is when we're talking to people, you know, we're doing the case management, the contact management, we're finding what's happening is people have let their guard down. And, you know, we, we know with, uh, with the end of summer and all the reopening and whatnot, it was good news. And I think we all felt pretty good about that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think we've just overdone it, quite frankly, and um, had forgotten just how important it is to stay six feet apart, to wear your mask, to keep your uh, number of interactions smaller when it comes to um, working with people. And we really need to, to rethink what we're all doing. It's not as if we don't know what to do. I mean, from an individual basis, anyway, it's the same stuff that that, that you've been talking about and, and other medical offices of health have been talking about from day one. It's the hand hygiene. It's now masking, of course, and social distancing. Uh, and of the three, I, I, I get the sense that social distancing is the one that we really seem to have uh, become lax with. Uh, I just don't see it happening to the same degree. I mean, there are some places where it's 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 mandated, and it's. But other than that, you're right. I think a lot of people are just subconsciously thinking, "Well, it's been around since January, and I haven't got it, so I'm probably going to be okay." Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we definitely say the physical distancing has been one of the things that we've seen people doing less of. I think to some extent, we hear it anecdotally that 
some people are thinking, well, I've got the mask on, so I don't need to worry so much about the physical distancing. And it's, nope, you need to have all of those things in place all of the time um, when it comes to, to doing those public health, health measures. And I think the other thing is just remembering, you know, when if you are going out, if you're if you need to go and see, you know, somebody in your in your family to help somebody, a senior or something like that, is to keep those interactions short. Because um, we know this virus likes to spread when it's a longer, closer interaction. So um, we really need to think about that as well. Yeah, and the masking, uh, as, as you've indicated, uh, you wear it properly. <laughs> Not to have it on, I mean, I don't know how many people I've seen right now that don't have their nose covered. And as we said yesterday, the nose is covered, connected to the lungs, you know, and, uh, and it, this is an airborne virus. So, uh, you know, we've got to be cognizant of that as well. Uh, I, the other thing that I guess a lot of, of us maybe lost track of, Doctor, is some of the collateral damage from this as the numbers start to go up. Uh, even the front page of The Spectator today talking about the backlog of surgery at the, at the Children's Hospital uh, and the backlog of, sur- backlog of surgeries at just about every hospital. I mean, there's a, so many different impacts that, that this second wave is going to have, and it really is to a certain extent up to us as to how severe it's going to be. That's absolutely right. You know, we, we made the changes that we needed to make during the first wave, and we saw just how impactful it was. Those numbers came down. We managed to get this under control. You know, it wasn't spreading, you know, beyond, you know, one or two people. And that is the, the real difference as well that we see in the numbers is that, that you know, it used to be when we were going through the first wave that we had, you know, two, three, four contacts to follow up. But we're finding we have 15, 16, 17 and more contacts. And that just goes to show you how much interaction people are really having and when their guard is let down, how many other people they're impacting. And then, as you said, those broader inter- those broader collateral impacts if we have to start doing things like reducing um you know the hours in restaurants and bars if we have to have you know more challenges around getting the backlog of surgeries um addressed that there's the the impacts are not only on ourselves and i think that's part of it too is as you said is that you know we think oh i didn't get it it's not so bad but people are still getting it and and people you know can get very sick uh, with it people who are vulnerable people who are older but even healthy you know people in their 20s 30s 40s can end up with a long protracted course with this over a couple of months and we don't know yet what the long term consequences are so we need to do it for us we need to do it for our loved ones and we need to do it to be a good citizen in our, in our community I know that research is still ongoing, but we've heard from people that have had the, the, the virus uh, and have quote-unquote recovered, uh, but months after the fact are still complaining about symptoms. Uh, so we don't know how long this is hanging on the body. I mean, you, you and I have had discussions in the past about some of the things that are that are out there that are still being explored, about the impact it has on the respiratory system, on the circulatory system, uh, on other organs as well. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're really gambling here. If you just figure, I can, oh, so I'm going to be sick for a few days. Uh, first of all, it's probably not going to be for a few days. It's going to be longer, and you don't know the long-term implications. Exactly. You know, there are those who get sick and stay sick for some time. They've been dubbed the long haulers, um, yeah. people who are sick for months at a time. And then we are still learning about what those long-term implications are. We know in the short term, unfortunately, there's been a connection with things like things like stroke. There's been some discussion about the more severe symptoms that sometimes occur in children, um, even though we see lower rates uh, overall in children. And so, you know, we need to really think about that. And it is a gamble. We still don't know this virus well enough yet to be, you know, getting um, sort of lackadaisical about it. Doctor, is there a threshold in your mind, if not stated, at least, you know, in the back of your mind, uh, as these numbers, if they, if they do continue to increase that, where you have to say, okay, let's uh, let's start reconsidering some of these things, uh, you know, what, where we can go, what we can do, how long we can do it for? 
Well, I think we're reconsidering it all the time. And for us, you know, we use some thresholds that, you know, tell us what the virus spread is, you know, how much uh, capacity we have in the healthcare system, how much capacity we have in public health to to do the follow-up. We're still at, you know, 230 people redeployed to do this work, which is not at all where we hoped we'd be this fall so we could get some other really important programming up and going. So it's it's an ongoing discussion, though, about those things. And, and we're always looking at what we see, what we learn from the people who get sick that, that we work with. And it is this, it's not so much that we're seeing a specific place or a specific challenge. It is about people, you know, going to a cottage with two or three other couples, you know, for the weekend. And it's about people going to Quebec for, you know, a, a short visit to go and have some fun. And, you know, people doing some, some minor travel, you know, away and then coming back, getting infected and spreading it amongst their household and amongst their social contacts. And so, this is where, you know, we don't want to have to go to reinforcing all this message and the and decreasing the spread through stricter controls. And you've seen the premier try to go forward in a in a stepwise manner and mm-hmm. we'll have to keep going if that's what's what's going on. But really it's in all of our power to turn this around and we need to do that. Your Toronto counterpart uh, touched on the bubble aspect. Maybe we could just spend a couple of minutes talking with that, Doctor, because I, I, I don't know if it's a misunderstanding, but that seems to be where part of the problem is. At one point during one of the uh, the recovery phases, you know, they said, well, you, you can expand the bubble. Uh, but that still means with a, a certain group of people. I mean, I think we've been doing it already. As you mentioned, you go someplace else, you know, and they say, okay, I'm going to go up Muskoka this weekend, and uh, just with a couple of friends. Well, that's that's beyond your bubble. I mean, you can't have a bubble there and a bubble here. I mean, that's one of the ways this thing gets spread. And I think a lot of people are either misunderstanding or abusing that whole concept. Exactly, Bill. You know, we've talked about the bubble having been burst. Yeah. And uh, that essentially as a concept, you know, it was, it was a good idea and it's certainly something that, that's been tried in other jurisdictions, but we're not seeing it being applied um, really in the way it was intended, I would say, here in, in Ontario, in Hamilton. And people are having multiple bubbles or each person in the household will have a bubble of 10 and that sort of thing. And so um, that's uh, something where people really need to, to perhaps think about it differently and think about each interaction, each person they're interacting with. Do I need to have this interaction? Can I do it virtually instead? Um, are there other innovative ways to do what I need to do and really keep that to the household and those close contacts, those close people who you need to interact with on a regular basis and otherwise you know, we need to move away from from the level of social interaction we've had. You mentioned about the uh, the other healthcare professionals in the community that I know you're in touch with on a daily basis. Uh, hospitals are one of them. We just talked about the the backlog at Children's Hospital, of course, at McMaster. Uh, I saw a story, a stat the other day that said even uh, the the other, you know, whether it's uh, the the Hamilton General or the you know, or St. Joseph or whatever the facilities might be, that they're almost 85, 90 percent capacity. So it's it's not as if there's going to be a necessarily a large influx of COVID patients coming up, uh, but other people get sick. I mean, there's other health problems too. And uh, is there a concern now about whether or not those facilities are going to have the capacity to deal with the COVID plus whatever else is happening? You know, cardiac problems, anything else that that might crop up. Well, I think with our, our healthcare partners, they've done a lot of work to plan and they've got a lot of, uh, of measures in place to make sure that they're able to respond, whether it is to people having heart attacks or uh, you know other medical conditions or whether it's trying to get through this backlog of surgery or, or respond to COVID. Um, but it is something that we're, you know, it has to be managed very carefully. And they're doing that, of course, in conjunction with the province. And so 
it's so critical that we, we again, think about these things from the standpoint of the impacts that it could have, because if these numbers go up and COVID ends up being what we have to focus on, we're not going to be able to catch up on the, that backlog of surgeries, and we're not going to be able, um, you know, potentially to, to see everybody who could need to be seen. And so it is so important that we all do what we need to do so we can stay in the good position that we were in at, at during wave one, um, around our healthcare resources and uh, and be able to get back to doing all those other things. And, and that is where we need to think about COVID, not just in terms of what it does do in terms of directly impacting our health, but our economy, um, our healthcare system, all of those things are necessary for us to stay healthy. Our connections with other people, our mental health are really important. We need our kids to be back in school because that's where they grow and develop best. And so, you know, controlling this virus is really critical, not just from a, from a, viral perspective, but from all of the impacts it has on our health. That's a great segue into the next segment we're going to do, Doctor. Thank you for that. Uh, so much in, for the great work that you and your staff are doing on this. We'll stay in touch, and hopefully we'll see these numbers start to go down again. Thanks so much for the time today, Dr. Richardson. Thank you, Bill. Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, now the Chief Medical Officer of Health for the City of Hamilton. Speaking of the uh, impact it's going to have on business, uh, the Canadian Federation for Independent Business is calling on the federal government to do more for small businesses during the COVID-19 pandemic because these small companies may not survive if there's no help. And, of course, that has really, I think, been exacerbated by the uh, the fact that we're moving into uh, the second wave right now. Jasmine Gwinnett is the Vice President of National Affairs with the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. Joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Jasmine, thank you so much for the time. Glad you could jump into that. Hi, right, it's my pleasure. Thanks it's for inviting pivot- me. Well, it's kind of a pivotal time, isn't it? I mean, some of the benefit packages that the government had rolled out back in the springtime are expiring right now, and, and I think there's a legitimate concern, especially for small businesses now, to say, look, it, we're back into this right now. We're into a second wave. What's the government going to do for us? And I, I can understand you must be getting an awful lot of inquiries from you, from your members. Yeah, we have uh, 110,000 members across Canada, 40-plus um, uh, thousand members just in Ontario, and... Uh, you know, another shutdown that could be fatal for uh, many small business. Um, right now, there's uh, 70% of small business are fully open, uh, but they only are making, uh, but only 30% are making norm- normal sales. And so um, support is needed. Uh, small business owners are very worried. And that figure uh, of 70% of small business being open uh, that's the number uh, before the Montreal shutdown to happen uh, later tonight. And so uh, business uh, owners are worried, uh, you know, uh, throughout Canada right now. Well, we've talked about in the past uh, one of the key elements here, the recovery is going to have to be consumer confidence. And uh, as you say, if they're only doing 30% of the business they did pre-COVID, and now we're into a second wave, I, I, you know, anybody who's going to be a little nervous about walking through the door of any one of those businesses, uh, is, is going to, that's going to be a problem for these people. I mean, because we've talked about some of the pressures that are on, uh, and really what we're trying to do is get money moving in the economy again, because that's what's going to keep small business going. Absolutely. And uh, right now, um, small business are struggling with, uh, with re- revenues, and that's why... Um, government support is needed, um, such as uh, expanding the SIBA loan program, which is currently a $40,000 loan, with a portion of it uh, being uh, forgivable. Uh, we're asking the government to increase uh, the amount of that uh, of the loan and to increase the portion uh, that can be forgivable if uh, the loan is repaid. And so that would be very helpful to put... Uh, 
some uh, cash in the end of business owner. Um, we we want to make sure that more businesses have access to that uh, loan program, such as those businesses that operate with uh, a personal bank account, which uh, to this day haven't been able to apply to have uh, support through that SIBA loan program. And uh, there's also the wage subsidy and the rent relief program that needs to be uh, expanded and uh, and changed and modified. So there are a lot of um, uh, things that the federal government can do to help small small business in the coming months. I know one of the ones I've heard about from is, is actually the threshold. In other words, the qualification for some of these programs. Uh, some business folks I've talked to, Jasmine, have said, you know what, the, the threshold's too high. It, it, you know, in other words, I have to lose 70% of my, my income before I can actually qualify, and that yeah. just doesn't seem fair. That's, that's waiting until you're already down and out before you're going to get government assistance. Yeah, the rent relief program um, uh, is a the, the rent relief program needs to be changed. Uh, that program did not work for many uh, small business. Uh, less than 25% who qualified uh, to receive um, support uh, actually received it because their landlord uh, decided to participate in the program, and so. Rent relief has to be extended through fall, and you mentioned the 70% revenue reduction criteria. That has to that has to that has to go away. That has to change. What needs to happen is um, is 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 to have the uh, the the is to introduce a sliding scale approach, mm-hmm. which would mean that the greater the revenue loss, um, the bigger the amount of the rent subsidy is. And the lower the revenue loss is, it means that the lower the rent uh, subsidy would be. And so these programs need to be tweaked, uh, especially the rent uh, relief uh, needs to go through fall and, and, and the support needs to go directly to the tenant. The way that program was designed uh, make it, made it very uh, complicated for a small business to actually have access to support that was promised to them. A lot needs to be done here, and like you say, it's, we do have a template. I mean, they did try some of these programs in the first wave, yep. and uh, there's, there's, as you mentioned, there's some modifications, some improvements that, that just have to happen. I wish you luck with this, Jasmine. Here's hoping that uh, the government is listening and, uh, and is going to implement a number of the things you've talked about in the next little while. We'll certainly stay in touch with you over the next few months to see how this rolls out. Thank you for the time today. Thanks so much for having us. Take care. Jasmine Guinat, of course, from the Canadian Federation of Independent Business. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Right now, uh, they're uh, holding a, a presser at uh, Queen's Park to talk about COVID-19. We already know, of course, that uh, the Premier and others have told us that we are now in the second wave. And, uh, well, the numbers do not look encouraging. We had a talk earlier this morning with uh, Dr. Elizabeth Richardson, the Medical Officer of Health, about what's happening here in Hamilton. On a province-wide basis, uh, it's uh, starting to look a little problematic here. Uh, Global's uh, Brianna Carnegie was there. Here's her report. Cases in Ontario are now doubling almost every 10 to 12 days. Likely over uh, 1,000 cases uh, within the first half of October a day, which is a remarkably high surge. There is some hope, as the government's forecast doesn't take into account recently introduced measures, such as limiting private gatherings, tightening restaurant restrictions, and shutting down strip clubs. It suggests more measures are soon to be announced. The key message is, if you look at what happened the first wave, we were able to flatten the curve and bring it down. 
Uh, Molly said if we didn't, we would suffer consequences. We have to do that again. Health officials outlined two concerning trends. Case numbers are now impacting all age groups, which could threaten the health care system, as well the testing percent positivity rate is on the rise. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. Well, those are not numbers that we want to see. And we have to ask ourselves, I guess, what are the implications and what are the ramifications going to be going forward? Uh, I want to bring uh, Dr. Ahmad Faros Khalid into the conversation, medical doctor and, uh, of course, health policy expert. Uh, doctor, uh, troubling numbers. Uh, we're trending, but we're trending the wrong way. Uh, this has got to be very troubling for you. Absolutely. Good morning, Bill. Thanks for having Hi. me. Yeah, those numbers are troubling. And, and they're not surprising. I mean, we knew they're going to be a rise in the numbers. But I think that's what everybody's waiting for to see is that can we handle those numbers and what can we do to actually address the rising numbers of COVID-19. So does this entail a discussion, and this is getting into the politics of it, but, you know, the Premier and, and the Prime Minister and everyone else has told us that, you know, these are going to be political decisions about what we need to do, but it's going to be based on the medical information and advice that they're getting right now. Uh, if you had the Premier's ear, would you be saying stay, stay the course, or uh, do we have to reconsider this? What, what do you think is going to be happening and what should happen? That is a great question, Bill. And the reality is when it comes to government and policymakers, when we look at the decision agenda or what they have to decide on, they take in many multiple factors in making that decision. One of them, and should be the primary reason here, is population health. And so when it comes to population health, we know that we need to scale back. So we need more closures across the sectors uh, just to limit the number of community engagement out there to, to slow the spread of the virus. Now, the issue comes is that, you know, small businesses are suffering, the economy is suffering, people want some kind of back to normal life, as we may call it. So I think it's many multiple things are working on. If I had the ear uh, of the premier, I would say that, you know, always make sure that the population health status is the, the forefront of any decision you make. And when considering what to close and, and, and what to keep open, uh, let's try to do our best to make sure that AR communication strategies are clear. So we're telling the public why we're closing certain things over others. I think people are looking for that information. But to also always, always be transparent about the numbers as much as possible. The other concern here, of course, is, as you mentioned, we saw what happened when we had the shutdown uh, that went on for quite some time. Some businesses have never recovered from that. Others, of course, are still uh, trying to get back on their feet uh, because of what's happening. So I, I, notwithstanding, the, uh, I think the commitment to public health, and I think that's absolutely right, Doctor, that's what they should be doing, uh, there's got to be a reticence to actually go back to those days because they understand what it does to the economy. Well, yeah, and, and, and we have to remind everybody that we are now past the one million deaths around the world. So if we needed numbers to tell us that COVID-19 kills, we have them. More than 1 million people around the world died because of COVID-19. COVID-19 is a very serious virus. So, uh, And the reason why I'm saying that, Bill, because I think there is this idea that, you know, it didn't affect me or somebody in my family. I don't think it is as big of a deal as everybody's trying to make it to be. It is a big deal. But COVID-19 does kill. Um, and so the, when it comes to whether we should close businesses or not, people's health, is that should be at the forefront. Money should be second. I understand that's easier for me to say that because I don't own a small business. So it's easier for me to say that, you know, my health and the health of others is the, uh, is the most important. But I think it should be that. I think that we should be looking at ways to support small businesses from a government standpoint uh, and an individual. So, you know, there were, when we did the first lockdown, uh, everybody recalls that we were promoting, you know, ordering from small businesses in the comfort of your own home. And right now, I mean, we're seeing also an expansion of IT and technology. So 
Many of the small businesses have actually ventured into uh, allowing online deliveries, phone call deliveries, uh, and trying to become creative in the way they deliver their, their services because they realize that COVID-19 is not going anywhere. And I know you and I had this discussion a couple of days ago, too. I mean, to a certain extent, we have ourselves to blame because we, we have kind of, you know, taken our foot off the gas pedal for a few minutes. I mean, in those early days, and, and I was just reminiscing about this just the other day, I had to pick up a package that they dropped off at the door while I was on the air. Uh, I mean, I was washing my hands every five minutes. I mean, if I touched anything that was from outside, wash my hands right away and, you know, sanitize and, and do everything I'm supposed to be doing. Uh, and I, I still think I should, but every now and then I just forget because I get busy doing other stuff. I mean, that still should be front of mind for us. And and I and so I put myself in that position. I'm sure I'm not the only one that uh, I still wear a mask everywhere I go. Every time I go outside, I have that on, and we're trying to do what we can about social distancing. But boy, if you if you start, you know, letting up on sorts of things like this, is this is how the spread happens. Exactly. And the best way I can think about it is that when we look at the weather forecast, uh, you know, in the summer months when we're trying to go decide to play golf or tennis or be outside for any purposes, we always look, look at the weather forecast, correct? We see yep. if it's sunny out or not. So the same advice should be applied now to COVID-19. You should be looking at the numbers every day. And if the numbers are high, which we're telling you they are high right now, uh, you should probably try to limit your exposure outside. So stay home if you, you know, if you're debating whether you should go hit this store you've been wanting to hit for a while, this is not a good time. If it can wait, it should wait. Because I think that this is how our current life status is. And I emphasize everybody, we're all sick and tired of COVID-19. We're tired of, you know, keeping up with the interventions and the advice of public health professionals. But they're there because they work. Because we don't want to get to a place where we get a full lockdown. So let's support small businesses. If we really care about that, you know, corner shop in our neighborhood that we don't want it to see go out of business, then please let's play our role in this. And by that, I mean, is that if you cannot be outside, not be, you know, uh, engaging in a wider community, sort of, uh, you know, slowing, helping to slow down the spread of the virus, let's do that now because the numbers are high and they're alarming. So with that in mind, obviously we need to be diligent about this, uh, but do we have a discussion at this stage about maybe we need to, uh, the premier's already talked about, you know, somehow the hotspots, as they call them, uh, are going to have to have reduced hours in some places and, and things of that nature. Uh, do we look at a province-wide thing? I mean, these are province-wide numbers, and I know that the majority, this week anyway, are still in the GTA, uh, Peel region, and, and mostly the city of Ottawa. Uh, but, I mean, we've said a, a steady increase in London. We've seen a steady increase in Hamilton. It's, it's, it's not a spike, but it's a steady increase. And it's troubling when you see that. Uh, do, do we need to, to be more disciplined here, too? I mean, the issue with that becomes, we've talked about this before, whether you should have a province-wide policy or a specific region policy. The thing is, we don't have closed borders between cities in Ontario. You can drive anywhere in Ontario. And so by that, I mean is that, you know, as much as we want to say that we can close off Hamilton, for example, and say nobody's allowed in and out of Hamilton, this way we can control the numbers of COVID-19. Similar to what New Zealand did, which is our model yeah. for like mm-hmm. what COVID-19 looks like, it's impossible. So as much as I want to say that, yes, ideally it makes sense that, you know, areas that don't have high numbers, why should they suffer from major lockdowns? Well, the reality is this is a virus and it doesn't care. Uh, whether you know you, you're going to uh, Hamilton is going to close down its borders, it's going to find a way to get in. So I think this is why we're staying away as much as possible from specific region uh, policies, but rather a province-wide policy. And sometimes, like Toronto right now, is is the highest numbers. You're going to see a little bit more strict measures, a strict more in, a strict enforcement of measures. 
Yeah, and we have uh, had that debate. Well, we had it here in Canada too. But I mean, I, I know the numbers in the states. When New York State was the the worst at, at that particular time, and we're talking early days, of course, in the pandemic then. Uh, and uh, you know, there was a concern about you know, well, the, what the states that didn't have very many cases said, well, why should we have any restrictions at all? Uh, but they've got it now. I mean, it did spread from coast to coast, and as you and many others have predicted, uh, you, you're right. You can't control this by geographic area. Just say, okay, we're just going to make sure. Uh, I mean, we can do it on an individual basis, of course, by self-isolating and, and trying to keep our our bubbles, uh, you know, small. But uh, you're right, it's a statewide basis. If it doesn't say, whoops, I'm at the city limits here, I better stay here, uh, it's not going to happen that way. And we still travel from place to place. I mean, it's summertime, and you're right, we've, we've kind of stretched the limits about where we should go these last couple of months. Exactly, and I think what my urge would be then is that we have stricter enforcement in areas of hotspots. So it's important to know which areas are hotspots or have the highest number of COVID-19. And then what should be happening right after that is that we, we focus our enforcement measures in those areas. So we don't, you know, have a, 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 a region-specific policies, but rather regions or areas that are known to be hotspots, we really try to sort of crack down on any people who are not following the rules there. We put more enforcement in place. We, visually, we go and check out parks and see, are people hanging out in numbers higher than usual? Are people throwing parties? I mean, this is how COVID is still increasing in numbers. We're hearing multiple reports of people having parties, having big, large social gatherings. You and I might not be doing it. Our friends might not be doing it. But there is still a sub-pocket of the population that are not abiding by the rules and are having large gatherings, no, not wearing face masks, not washing their, height, their, their hands. And so this is where the problem happens. Yeah, and it's it's something, you know, in a, in a lot of people's minds, doctor, probably is insignificant. Like, I, I had three or, three or four guys over last Sunday to watch the football games. Uh, you're not supposed to be doing that. If there are people that are not in your immediate family, if they're not in your bubble, uh, you're running the risk of the spread. I mean, and I, I know that we don't think in those terms because, no, it's just a couple of buddies, but you don't know where they've been. You don't know who they've been with. You don't know if they're carrying the virus or if they're actually had the virus. Yeah, exactly. And I think this is where we're where we're trying to see that, you know, it's a, it's a double stake. We don't want to put the blame on just the people. The government sure. needs to play a role. Everybody has a role to play in COVID-19. We're, you and I are now talking about us as individuals and what we can do, but that's not to confuse the message that, you know, we're blaming us for all that's going on. No, it's, it's going to take everybody. We've always said this with COVID-19 pandemic. It is a team effort. It is not going to be a one person or one sub-pocket of population. It's the entire country. It's everybody involved. And everybody has a role to play in this. There is not a single person who doesn't have a role to play in how to get ahead of COVID-19 pandemic. I guess we also, and you made this point months ago, and I think it bears repeating, uh, is that we know enough about the virus at this stage that some of the, the, the things that we would count on for other viruses uh, don't apply here. The weather doesn't seem to have an impact on it. We've already had cold weather. Uh, we've had warm weather, and uh, the virus is still there. You know, The warm weather doesn't kill it like it does for the flu in some people's minds anyway. Uh, the cold weather doesn't get rid of it either. It's, it's, it seems to be omnipresent. Uh, so, you know, that's that's not a factor. Our body temperatures don't seem to have much of an impact. I would think either, do they? No, and, and we've said this from early on. We've looked at the evidence and we saw that it was still happening in areas that were hotter temperatures when we were cold. So Singapore and other parts of the world, they were still having COVID-19 numbers when we were in our winter months. So we knew uh, coming ahead of this the winter season that COVID-19 will stay around and that the summer season would not kill it off. And so 
that's not surprising. And I'll be, I'll be very shocked if anybody says otherwise, because the evidence was there and it was clear that the COVID-19 does not care about weather. I've said it before and I'll say it again. COVID-19 cares less about our weather, our, what we feel, what we want. It is a, a, an angry beast of a virus who's just trying to find the next human host, period. Uh, and our job is to try to prevent that from happening. Uh, until we get a vaccine or an effective treatment in place. And so we just need to keep the, the, the course and we need to keep finding ways to communicate the messages around COVID-19. Well, and on that, we've got about a minute or so left. Let's talk very briefly, if we could, about the vaccine itself, because, I mean, I know that's the hope, uh, but it's it's not the panacea. I mean, we certainly want to see one develop. We don't know how effective it's going to be. Uh, we don't know when it's going to be available for widespread distribution. We're told uh, by Dr. Fauci and Dr. Redfield in the States and by Dr. Tam up here that we're probably looking at sometime in May or June of next year that we can actually make an appointment someplace and go and get vaccinated uh, if, in fact, this proves to be effective. It actually could be later than that. So uh, whatever protocols we've got in place and however fatigued we are with these, Doctor, I guess the message here, the takeaway, is that you better get used to it because it's not going to change anytime soon. Exactly, and I, I wouldn't put my money on May. Uh, you think that may i mean i'll be very shocked if that happens so you're absolutely right i think that this is exactly to our point that we must continue to fight this i know we're all tired i understand that i'm tired of it but we just it is our current reality and we're going to get through it together i i mean i am positive and optimistic about the future and and i think that we will figure out a way to get ahead of this it just is going to take everybody's role to play in this well, and the other element that I think we can take solace in, too, is at least our, our elected leaders in this side of the border anyway, for the most part, uh, are, are on side with this. So they understand the Absolutely. severity of it, and, uh, and they seem to be dictating policy with that in mind. Yeah, the government's being very aggressive to make sure that we all get access to this vaccine. The government is working exceptionally hard at figuring out how to support small businesses and us, individuals, but also on the health front. We've been, we've, we, Canada is looked at as a leader around the world of a country that's really trying to get ahead of us. Doctor, always a pleasure talking to you, and uh, somewhat reassuring after I get to your, your perspective on this. Thanks again for the time today. Thank you. Have a great week. Thank you. You too. Take care. Dr. Amit Khalid, of course, a medical expert and health policy expert as well. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.